Between the essential reads and the English essentials, I spend a lot of time writing scripts. Now, I could do this from home, but it's a lot nicer to get out of the house and work in a coffee shop or a cafe. I could use my phone data to check articles and research for my scripts, but that can get expensive fast. It's so much easier to use the Wi-Fi at my favourite coffee shops. Well, thanks to Surfshark VPN, I don't have to worry about public Wi-Fi networks stealing my data. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and continue working without having to worry about anyone stealing my data. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 a month on a two-year plan. And work worry-free wherever you please. Have you ever received a call or text from a number that you don't know, saying that a package you ordered hasn't been delivered because they need just a little bit more information from you? You don't remember ordering a package, and then start wondering how this scammer got your number. Well, anytime you go online and accept cookies or buy anything online, websites can keep your data and sell it to data brokers who create a digital ID of you. They can sell this digital ID to the highest bidder, and lo and behold, a bunch of scammers get a ton of information about you that you never agreed to give them. Well, with Ecogni, this is no longer an issue. All you need to do is sign up, and Ecogni will use the GDPR and CCPA and other privacy laws to get these companies to remove your data from their networks, protecting you and your data from scammers and anyone else who wants to use your data against you. Use the link in the description or episode notes and get Ecogni today for $6.49 a month on a one-year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Hello and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. We're continuing with Ken Kessie's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and the book's about to get a little bit weird, so bear with it. A uh, good chapter, but a little strange. Let's get started. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding. Isaac. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kessie. First time in a long, long time. I'm in bed without taking that little red capsule. If I hide to keep from taking it, the night nurse with the birthmark sends the black boy named Giver out to hunt me down, hold me captive with his flashlight till she can get the needle ready. So I fake sleep when the black boy's coming past with his light. When you take one of these red pills, you don't just go to sleep. You're paralyzed with sleep. And all night long, you can't wake, no matter what goes on around you. That's why the staff gives me the pills. At the old place, I took to waking up at night and catching them perform all kinds of horrible acts on the patients sleeping around me. I lie still and slow my breathing, waiting to see if something is going to happen. It is dark, my lord. I can hear them slipping around out there in their rubber shoes. Twice, they peek in the dorm and run a flashlight over everybody. I keep my eyes shut and keep awake. I hear a wailing from up on the disturbed. Lulu Lu. Got some guy wired to pick up code signals. Oh, a beer, I think. 
the long night ahead. I hear a black boy whisper to the other. Rubber shoes squeak off towards the nurse's station, where the refrigerator is. You like a beer, sweet thing with a birthmark? For the long night ahead? The guy upstairs hushes. The low whine of the devices in the walls gets quieter and quieter, till it hums down to nothing. Not a sound across the hospital, except for a dull, padded rumbling somewhere deep in the guts of the building. A sound that I never noticed before. A lot like the sound you hear when you're standing late at night on top of a big hydroelectric dam. Low, relentless, brute power. The fat black boy stands out there in the hall where I can see him, looking all around and giggling. He walks towards the dorm door, slow, wiping the wet, gray palms in his armpits. The light from the nurse's station throws his shadow on the dorm wall, big as an elephant, gets smaller as he walks the dorm door and looks in. He giggles again and unlocks the fuse box by the door and reaches in. That's right, babies. Sleep tight. Twist a knob, and the whole floor goes slipping down away from him, standing in the door, lowering into the building like a platform in a grain elevator. Not a thing, but the dorm floor moves, and we're sliding away from the walls and the door and the windows of the ward at a hell of a clip. Beds, bedstands, and all. The machinery, probably a cog in a traffic affair at each corner of the shaft, is greased, silent as death. The only sound I hear is the guy's breathing, and that drumming under us getting louder the farther down we go. The light of the dorm door, 500 yards back up this hole, is nothing but a speck, dusting the square sides of the shaft with a dim powder. It gets dimmer and dimmer, till a faraway scream comes echoing down the sides of the shaft. Stay back! And the light goes out altogether. The floor reaches some kind of solid bottom far down in the ground and stops with a soft jar. It's dead black, and I can feel the sheet around me choking off my wind. Just as I get the sheet untied, the floor starts sliding forward with a little jolt. Some kind of caster is under it and I can't hear. I can't even hear the guys around me breathing. I realize, all of a sudden, it's because that drumming's gradually got so loud, I can't hear anything else. We must be square in the middle of it. I go clawing at that damn sheet tied across me and just about have it loose. When a whole wall slides up, reveals a huge room of endless machines stretching clear out of sight, swarming with sweating shirtless men running up and down catwalks, faces blank and dreamy in firelight thrown from a hundred blast furnaces. It, everything I see, looks like it sounded like the inside of a tremendous dam. Huge brass tubes disappear upwards in the dark. Wires run to transformers out of sight. Grease and cylinders catch on everything, Staining the couplings and motors and dynamos red and coal black. The workers all move at the same smooth sprint, an easy, fluid stride. No one's in a hurry. One will hold up a second, spin a dial, push a button, throw a switch, and one side of his face flashes white like lightning from the spark of the connecting switches, and run on, up steel steps and along a corrugated iron catwalk, past each other. So smooth and close, I can hear the slap of wet sides 
like the slap of a salmon's tail on water. Stop again, throw lightning from another switch, and run on again. They twinkle in all directions, clean on out of sight. These flash pictures of dreamy doll faces of the workmen. A workman's eyes snap shut while he's going at full run, and he drops in his tracks. Two of his buddies running by grab him and lateral him into a furnace as they pass. The furnace whoops a ball of fire, and I hear the popping of a million tubes, like walking through a field of seed pots. This sound mixes with the whir and clang of the rest of the machines. There's a rhythm to it, like a thundering pulse. The dorm floor slides on out of the shaft and into the machine room. Right away, I see what's straight above us. One of those trestle affairs, like you'd find in meat houses. Rollers on tracks to move carcasses from one cooler to the butcher without much lifting. Two guys in slacks, white shirts with the sleeves turned back and thin black ties, are leaning on the catwalk above our beds, gesturing to each other as they talk. Cigarettes in long holders, tracking lines of red light. They're talking, but you can't make out the words above the measured roar rising all around them. One of the guys snaps his fingers, and the nearest workman veers in a sharp turn and sprints to his side. The guy points down at one of the beds with his cigarette holder, and the worker trots off to the steel stepladder and runs down to our level, where he goes out of sight between two transformers, huge as potato sellers. When that worker appears again, he's pulling a hook alongside the trestle overhead and taking giant strides as he swings it along. He passes my bed, and a furnace whooping somewhere suddenly lights up his face over mine. A face handsome and brutal and waxy, like a mask, wanting nothing. I've seen a million faces like it. He goes to the bed and with one hand grabs the old vegetable, Blastic, by the heel and lifts him straight up like Blastic doesn't weigh more than a few pounds. With the other hand, the worker drives the hook through the tendon at the back of the heel and the old guy's hanging there, upside down, his moldy face blown up big, scared. The eyes succumbed with mute fear. He keeps flapping both arms and the free leg till his pajama top falls down around his head. The worker grabs the top and bunches and twists it like a burlap sack and pulls the trolley, clicking back over the trestle to the catwalk and looks up to where those two guys in white shirts are standing. One of the guys takes a scalpel from the holster at his belt. There's a chain welded to the scalpel. The guy lowers it to the worker, loops the other side of the chain around the railing so the worker can't run off with a weapon. The worker takes the scalpel and slices up the front of old plastic with a clean swing, and the old man stops thrashing around. I expect to be sick, but there's no blood or innards falling out like I was expecting to see. Just a shower of rust and ashes, and now and again a piece of wire or glass. Worker's standing there to his knees in what looks like clinkers. A furnace got its mouth open somewhere, licks up somebody. I think about jumping up and running round, and waking up McMurphy and Harding and as many of the guys I can. But there wouldn't be any sense in it. If I shook somebody awake, he'd say, Why, you crazy idiot? What the hell's eating at you? and then probably help one of the workers lift me on one of those hooks himself, saying, 
How about let's see what the insides of an Indian are like? I hear the high, cold, whistling, wet breath of the fog machine. See the first wisp of it come seeping out from under McMurphy's bed. I hope he knows enough to hide in the fog. I hear a silly prattle. It reminds me of somebody familiar. And I roll enough to get a look down the other way. It's the hairless public relation with a bloated face. Now the patients are always arguing why it's bloated. I'll say he does, they'll argue. Me, I say he doesn't. You ever hear of a guy who really wore one? Yeah, but you ever hear of a guy like him before? The first patient shrugs and nods. Interesting point. Now he's stripped, except for a long undershirt, with fancy monograms sewed red onto the front and back. And I see, once and for all, the undershirt rides up his back some as he comes walking past, giving me a peek, that he definitely does wear one. Laced so tight, it might blow up any second. And dangling from the stays, he's got half a dozen withered objects, tied by the hair like scalps. He's carrying a little flask of something that he sips from to keep his throat open for talking, and a camphor hanky he puts in front of his nose from time to time to keep out the stink. There's a clutch of school teachers and college girls and the like hurrying after him. They wear blue aprons and their hair in pin curls. They're listening to him give a brief lecture on the tour. He thinks of something funny and has to stop his lecture long enough for a swig from the flask to stop the giggling. During the pause, one of his pupils stargazes around and sees the gutted chronic dangling by his heel. She gasps and jumps back. The public relation turns and catches sight of the corpse and rushes to take one of those limp hands and give it a spin. The student shrinks forward for a cautious look, face in trance. You see? You see? He squeals and rolls his eyes and spews stuff from the flask he's laughing so hard. He's laughing till I think he'll explode. When he finally drowns the laughter, he starts back along the row of machines and goes into his lecture again. He stops, suddenly, and slaps his forehead. Oh, scatterbrained me! And comes running back to the hanging chronic to rip off another trophy and tie it to his girdle. Right and left, there are other things happening, just as bad. Crazy, horrible things, too goofy and outlandish to cry about, and much too true to laugh about. But the fog is getting thick enough that I don't have to watch. And somebody's tugging at my arm. I know already what will happen. Somebody will drag me out of the fog, and we'll be back on the ward, and there won't be a sign of what went on tonight. And if I was fool enough to try and tell anybody about it, they'd say, Idiot, you just had a nightmare. Things as crazy as a big machine room down in the bowels of a dam where people get cut up by robot workers don't exist. But if they don't exist, how can a man see them? It's Mr. Turkle that pulls me out of the fog by the arm, shaking me and grinning. He says, You having a bad dream, Mr. Bromden? He's the aide, works a long, lonely shift from 11 till 7. An old Negro man with a big, sleepy grin on the end of a long, wobbly neck. He smells like he's had a little to drink. Back to sleep now, Mr. Bromden. Some nights he'll untie the sheet from across me if it's so tight I squirm around. He wouldn't do it if he thought the day crew knew it was him, because they'd probably fire him. But he figures the day crew would think it was probably me that untied it. I think he really does it to be kind. To help. But he makes sure he's safe first. This time, he doesn't untie the sheet. 
but walks away from me to help two aides I'd never seen before, and a young doctor lift old plastic onto the stretcher and carry him out, covered with a sheet. Handle him more careful than anybody ever handled him before in all his life. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcasts, please drop a follow and a review. Five stars preferred, but you know, it's uh, your life. Do what you want. And if you want to support me in a more personal way, you can join the show and join the, uh, the podcast. The links to both of those are in the description box on the respective platforms where you're listening to this or watching it if you want to see my face for some bizarre reason. And um, yeah, it would allow me to do this full time and stop suffering the slings and arrows of working in a restaurant. It's real hard. Uh, Anyway, once again, thanks for watching, and until next time, bye-bye.